0: We have one more uh, Sunday school of evangelism. Then, in two weeks, we have our uh, annual meeting. All members uh, need to be here, should be here. And if you are planning to join our church sometime this year, you're welcome to come as well. Uh, if you are not able to be here, uh, there was an email sent that you can join on Zoom, and then there will be a, a survey that is your voting that will be sent to you during that meeting, but obviously we'll have ballots here. There's no Sunday school, but it's only 45 minutes, uh, and so we'll, um, because it's during the Sunday school time, there is nursery, and, uh, but no Sunday school for the children. They can uh, be a part of our, of our uh, business meeting, and that's no problem at all. Thank you for uh, studying God's word. Thank you for challenging me Uh, when I don't uh, get something right, and I have to clarify, uh, Luke 24, 48, if you want to go there with me, hold your hand in Acts 4, we'll come back to that, but uh, we're going to be in Acts today, Uh, Luke 2nd writing, but in uh, Luke 24, um, we have the Great Commission in Luke 24, and I... um, Wasn't clear, and probably not very helpful on explaining verse 48. So verse 48 is historical for the disciples. Only we um, should testify, uh, but we aren't eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is uh, he was talking to his disciples, and so that wasn't clear uh, last week. The best interpretation is historical. Um, and I think I included that this should be our witnessing of um, Christ's death and resurrection, but that was given to the disciples. We are to be Christ's witnesses, uh, but this isn't the passage um, that is best interpreted that way. So it's not the best application, and so thank you for um, pointing that out. And every time I preach, we always have to be... Studying God's Word, as Acts 17 says, to see if whether or not you're being taught the truth, and if you're not, when I preach, I'm not infallible, and everything I say is not infallible, and so if I'm reading God's Word, that's infallible, (laughs) but if I explain it, I can explain it incorrectly at times, and so thank you for um, letting me know when that that is true. So let's go to Acts 1. So the, the end of Luke, Luke puts his two books together, but it sounds like Acts uh, or, uh, Luke 24 ends with the uh, ascension of Christ. And then we get to Acts 1, and Christ is still on the earth, and he ascends in Acts 1. And so what uh, Luke is probably doing here, and he writes both of his books to the same man, Theophilus, and he tells us in Acts 1, he's writing this epistle not to... Uh, not to be the same as Luke's account, not like a, another synoptic gospel about the life of Christ, because that's, he says in Acts 1.1, I write the, in the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he, whom he had chosen. So we have commands at the end of the epistles, or of the um, gospels, which are the Great Commission, and here Acts 1 is our final time. We're going to look at the Great Commission here in Acts 1, and then we'll look at Acts 4. But uh, Jesus, in verse 3, presented himself alive to him, the apostles that he has chosen, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And this matches what uh, Luke 24, uh, 49 said. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Immersed uh, with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. But when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. If you were one of the apostles, you would expect Jesus is the Messiah. He is going to establish an earthly kingdom when he comes. And he died on the cross, he paid for sins, he rose again the third day, he has been on earth for 40 more days, and now you're expecting now is when this kingdom is going to be established now is when we have joined this team expecting an earthly kingdom now and jesus and that's what the apostles were expecting okay you were a suffering servant you fulfilled the old testament you died in our place we believe in you and you're alive and now now is the time we're going to throw off roman rule we're going to establish this kingdom now how are we like them? Well, I've heard in years in, in our recent past that there are people that think that America is Christianity's last hope. This is called Christian nationalism. You may have heard it, but, and when people think that we've got to get someone in the White House and all of the other uh, people in, in power so that we can bring on God's kingdom now. As if <laughs> God's not doing anything else in the world, that this, this, is, the, this is the country where God's going to bring his kingdom to. And we're confused about what we're blending the Old Testament uh, with. We think the, America is the new national Israel, which is not true. And as far as we can tell, our nation of America is in the sewage path of Romans 1, like they have rejected God, rejected God, rejected God, changed the glory of God into an image made like man, and they weren't thankful, and God starts giving them over to start doing some really wicked, gross things, and that's where our country is. That's where our country, just to the north of us, Canada, is, and we have friends in Canada, but Canada is passed it, trying to pass a law that I was aware of from a group of pastors, that they're trying to make it illegal and even a felony uh, to use conversion therapy when it comes to um, sexual orientation and uh, are trying to have a five-year prison sentence for anyone who would try to convert someone and uh, call that hate uh, crime. And so that law has passed in Canada last week and so uh, but the Canadian pastors that I know of that, uh, and our friends, the Arnolds, have gone to Canada. They're ministering there, um, I believe, now. Uh, we need to pray uh, for them. And I told uh, the group of pastors that I would uh, tell our church, pray uh, for this, this fall, Lord willing, uh, we'll look at um, the sexual revolution other things in our Sunday school time. With teens and adults and uh, culture, and how we need to uh, confront culture with the truth. We are the salt of the earth, and the world doesn't want salt, they want sugar. I heard this in a podcast yesterday. What the world desperately wants is something sweet, and we are not the sugar of the earth, we're the salt. And if salt has lost its savor, Jesus says in Matthew 5, it's worthless. To be, it's like gravel. It's like dust. Just cast it down and be trodden under the foot of men. And we as Christians are consistently, from the first century till now, salt. And we'll see in Acts 4 very clearly that the world, if we are faithful to our Savior, the world is going to hate us. That is not in a lot of churches where we are trying to give the world what they want and water down the gospel and join them in their revolutions and all of their uh, ways to minimize the gospel. And we are not going to join them. And we're going to join the few of God's people that are going to stand for truth. The gospel is going to be less and less popular And that's what we're seeing in our country. And instead of America being Christianity's last hope, Christianity is America's last hope. Okay, so they have it backwards. And Christianity is every other country's last hope as well. And so this is our message, and we're not changing this. And this is our focus uh, this year. And if it becomes illegal in our country, uh, we will keep standing with the truth and... um, and join our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And uh, because we're not living for this world, we're living for the next. Well, that's kind of heavy, but this is where Jesus is going to leave his disciples. They're expecting an earthly kingdom and an earthly kingdom now, and he says, I'm not establishing a kingdom now. I'm going to heaven. You can't have a kingdom if the king is gone. Okay, we want... The kingdom, now the disciples are saying in verse six of Acts one, and Jesus says to them in verse seven, He said to them, "It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority." The word authority, I, I believe it's the same word as Jesus said, "All authority has been given to me back in Matthew 28, and same t- same time frame of giving the great commission, So the Son has authority. The Father has authority to tell the Son when to come back to earth, and God the Father is in charge of that. And the disciples' desire for Christ to set up an earthly kingdom now isn't going to play into, isn't going to change uh, God's authority. But here is what Jesus says to them. It's not for you to know this, but here's what you are to do. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Hold your hand here. Go to Acts 4, and there is an interesting story that I'm going to use for the introduction here. What happens when weak, uneducated, ordinary, common people Speak powerfully for Christ. Who gets the glory? Verse 13. Verse 12 of Acts 4. There is salvation. Oh wait, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, uneducated, common men they were astonished you know what they weren't they weren't repentant and while the world might be astonished at the truth of god and the power that hopefully is displayed through our lives as we are submissive to the holy spirit what we want them and encourage them our message doesn't change from what we saw in acts 24 repentance for the forgiveness of sins That is our message. And no matter what they say, no matter what they threaten us, and Acts 4 is going to talk about the threatenings uh, that uh, John alluded to before his scripture reading. And so we'll go back to Acts 1. And the Holy Spirit is necessary for God's power to be in us. And God's power in the person of the Holy Spirit is in us for a very particular reason. The apostles had the Holy Spirit empower them to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Where is the end of the earth now? According to Acts 1, Drake at Massachusetts is is not Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We are part of the end of the earth. The gospel has spread Thousands of miles from Jerusalem, a few people, 120 people in an upper room, to 3,120 people, to 8,120 people, to the persecution, the scattering throughout the Roman Empire, to the Reformation, to across the ocean, to us. The gospel has spread here. The Holy Spirit empowered believers hundreds and 2,000 years later to spread the gospel to you and to me. God's working. We want to be part of what God is doing in saving people and spreading this gospel. The disciples had to wait 10 more days after Jesus ascended to heaven before the Holy Spirit came. But throughout the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36 and other uh, places, the people that were faithful to Israel wanted the Holy Spirit for themselves, and only a few people could observe that, yes, Samson had the Holy Spirit. That's why he could do powerful things. Oh, yeah. Um, Other people, uh, kings and prophets had the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's how they could speak for God and lead for God and fight um, for God. But only leaders had the Holy Spirit. The average person had no chance. But when Acts 2 comes and the Holy Spirit comes like a rushing mighty wind and empowers these 120 believers, and then they're promising in the end of Acts 2 that uh, you will receive the Holy Spirit if you turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord, um, In verse 38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And throughout the book of Acts, there are people groups, there are individuals that submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. They're empowered by the Spirit, and when they are, they're witnesses for Christ. Because of the Holy Spirit, we have no excuses for not sharing the gospel. And even if we're common, ordinary, uneducated people... When God uses them to powerfully speak for Christ, of Christ, God gets all the glory. Jesus gets all the glory, and that's what we desperately want, Jesus to get all the glory. Why this theme for this year? Because we all struggle to speak to people of the greatest news. We can talk to someone about the Patriots, and it's so natural. The Red Sox, the Celtics, the Bruins. We can talk about HGTV We can talk about home improvement. We can talk about our cars. We can talk about how cold it is. We can talk about what you put on the ice so you don't slip. You can talk about anything. But when it comes to how do I switch gears from talking about the ordinary and the common and this world, how can I talk about the next world? It's almost like a barrier that we can't get through. We don't know how to... Uh, change And if you missed Sunday school last week, Craig had an excellent Sunday school. Where he te- gave us some very specific questions and uh, conversations that you can help turn the quarter next week in the exchange. Uh, we will look also at uh, how would you describe your relationship with God. Um, but be, being a good listener helps. We we're sitting with a missionary uh, this week and talking and uh, they're in another country. And uh, the pandemic has hit their heart as well. And uh, she said, I invited my neighbors. I'm sitting out on my porch on Tuesday nights and invited them to come. That's, I, that's all I said. I want to meet you. I'm your new neighbor. Uh, and I'm going to be sitting out on my porch. You're welcome to come. If you have a yard, if you have a porch, if you put out a chair on the sidewalk, <laughs> put, put yourself out there and allow people to come and talk talk about life. And as you talk about life, people are you're going to hear and she said this, people are hurting. People are hopeless. You know why? Because people are thinking and this world offers no hope. The best hope is take some medicine, drink something, shoot something in your arm, that's that's what's going to relieve your problems. And it just makes problems worse. And we have the hope of eternal life. We have the greatest news. And we often feel alone. When I'm with someone trying to evangelize, my boldness goes way much, much higher. If I'm by myself, it's like, I, I'm, I like, I'm comfortable talking about anything but Jesus. And when it gets to Jesus, okay, it's, it's still uncomfortable. But we're not alone. We have to think this way. As a Christian, we are never alone. You might be the only one in your family that knows Christ. You might be the only one in your workplace that knows Christ. And I was talking to someone else this week at church, and they were saying, you know, God has Christians in different companies. And I've seen God put believers in certain places where they're the only ones, but they're the only light. And that's God's design. That's God's providence to put you and working with who you're working. If you're in a trade and someone calls you, that is God's providence, them finding your number. And we are excited about how God's going to bring unsaved people to us and as we are praying for them uh, and our eyes would be open our hearts are ready our minds are prepared and you will have a church that is praying for you you just need to let us know who it is that you're praying for specifically um, and we will pray for you and we'll pray for you along the lines of acts 4 we're going to get there in a second acts 1 and 4 motivate us to speak of christ because we are never alone We never are, and we never will be, and our Savior will hold us fast. He will be with us in the hardest of times. Christ promised, don't even prepare when you are going to be drugged before the magistrates and the rulers. You don't even have to prepare because I'm going to be with you. What did Jesus say in in, uh, Matthew 28? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You're never alone. God is with you. How do we know God is with us? Well, Jesus promised throughout the book of John specifically, in John 14 to 16, that the Holy Spirit would be with us. The Holy Spirit would be within us. Now, let's go to John. Hold your hand in Acts 1. Go back a few pages to John chapter 16. And we have to know this as we are trying to share the gospel with people and the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit is already working in people's hearts. How do we know that? Because this is what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do to the world, for the world, for individual people of the world that we are around. And if we know that the Holy Spirit is working on them already, okay, our, our boldness should increase because the Holy Spirit's inside of us and he's encouraging us to talk to people and he is working on them, even if they are resistant to the gospel, or give us all kinds of excuses, but the Holy Spirit convicts the world. I don't have to convict people of sin and righteousness of judgment. This is the Holy Spirit's job. And as the Holy Spirit of God, and He is omnipresent, He's everywhere. And He's like a surgeon that goes right inside of people's hearts and wants to and tells them, you are not right with God. Let's see what he convicts them of in John 16, uh, 8 through 11. John 16, this is talking about the Holy Spirit, 14, 15, 16 are the gospel of John's, uh, Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, in verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And Acts 2 is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 8. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Those are pretty serious words. And then he goes on to explain, verse 9, 10, and 11, a verse for each. What does sin mean? The Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of sin. Verse 9. Because... They do not believe in me. So conviction is punishment is coming. That's the context of this. So the Holy Spirit convinces the world punishment is coming. And he's gonna convince them very specifically that punishment's coming because of sin. We talk about sin and as we witness to people, do not overlook sin, don't skip over it. And early on in your gospel presentation, mention sin why because we know how the holy spirit's working the holy spirit is working on someone's heart and when you tell them have you ever told a lie and they might be confident that they're on their way to heaven probably i haven't heard anyone say i'm 100 percent sure unless they are a believer but they might be really confident until you start talking about sin their confidence and their facial expressions start to change what is that That's the Holy Spirit taking the word of God and convicting them, as Jesus promised he would do, of sin. Punishment is coming because Jesus is rejected. The greatest sin is the rejection of Jesus. Now, you probably know John 3.16, but we rip that out of context sometimes, or we don't go the full passage, but 3.18 of John says this. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why is he condemned already? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Who is Jesus talking to there? A religious leader. Someone who taught about God, but was as a whole, the Pharisees, rejected the name of the Son of God. And Acts 4 says there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So rejecting Jesus is a sin, and punishment is coming, and the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of this particular sin. You're rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And as you explain uh, the law and explain sin... Realize that the Holy Spirit is doing his work inside of someone's heart and that he is convicting them of this particular sin. Verse 10 of John 16 says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What does that mean? You have to meditate on that a little bit and uh, think Jesus is the only righteous one. If Jesus is the only righteous one, and in verse 9, I'm convicted because I'm rejecting Jesus, I'm going to establish my own righteousness. But wait a minute, you can't establish your own righteousness because you're not the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Jesus. And he goes to the Father, and we don't see him any longer. We have to believe in a Savior that we have never seen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because Old and New Testament says this, the just shall live by faith. Who's the righteous one? After we explain sin to someone and the Holy Spirit's working on them, and we're telling them rejecting Jesus is a serious sin, you're rejecting the righteous one. You look at how the apostles shared the gospel in the book of and You'll see that they said, you killed the righteous one. So the Spirit convicts the world of sin. They've rejected Christ. And righteousness is not found in anyone but Christ alone. And then thirdly here, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. What did Jesus say to those who questioned him back in John 8 about you are... How do you know Abraham? You weren't alive when Abraham was. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. That was the end of John 8. But in the middle of John 8, Jesus says, you you claim to be related to Abraham. And you're actually, you're of your father, the devil. Oh, you're just like him. Satan hates Christ. You hate Christ. You're in the very presence of the I am. And you're picking up stones to stone him? Yeah, this is how the world treats Christ. They absolutely hate him. Why? Because he is rejected. Because because of him, punishment's coming. And the Holy Spirit reminds the world that punishment's coming. The Holy Spirit also reminds them Jesus is the righteous one. And unrighteous people killed the righteous one. And then, and without Jesus, there is no righteousness. Apart from the law, you cannot earn righteousness. It's given to you by a righteous Savior. And then the Holy Spirit convicts the world that punishment's coming because they are following a condemned Satan. And see how many friends and people are happy with you when you talk to them like that. But what you're doing when you talk to them like that, with a heart of compassion for them. You are... Coming alongside the Holy Spirit because you know the Holy Spirit's already doing these three things for them and with you. Can the Holy Spirit work in spite of us? Of course he does. He, he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment when people are sitting in their homes, when people can't sleep at night. And he's bringing the gospel truth that, that you have shared and other people have shared and they found on YouTube and other places. And he's bringing the gospel truth to mind, and he is convicting them these three ways. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Coming punishment because Jesus is rejected. Coming punishment because Jesus is the only righteous one, and you need him. Coming punishment because they are following a condemned ruler of this world. We're never alone. See, the Holy Spirit's inside of us. And as we know Truths like John 16. We know what the Holy Spirit is doing. Our job is so much easier. All we have to do is tell people what you're feeling now in guilt and condemnation is a good thing. You're guilty because you are guilty. You feel guilty because you are guilty. You're not right. You try to be right without Christ and there's no other righteousness that you can establish. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. And Christ is the only one. And you think you're following God while you're actually following Satan. Ooh, Agree with God that that is true. And submit, repent for the forgiveness of sins. We go back to our message from last week of Luke 24, 46 and 47. The Spirit convicts the world. The Spirit also empowers us to speak of the Son. We'll look at uh, John 16, 13 to 15, and then we'll go to Acts 1-8 and stay in Acts. The Holy Spirit empowers the follower of Christ to exalt Christ. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, the apostles, yes, are the immediate recipients of God's uh, Spirit, and He's guiding them into truth. And He's guiding them because they need to write the rest of the New Testament, and in particular, when John writes the books of Revelation, and uh, Paul writes uh, Thessalonians about the end times, um, The apostles are led by the Holy Spirit to write accurately and perfectly what is to come. Now we have a full Bible. We have the truth. So we aren't necessarily, verse 13, expecting the Holy Spirit to speak additional revelation. Actually, Revelation says we shouldn't be looking for that. We're not adding to it. It's sealed. It's done. Verse 14, though. But the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit takes truth about God and brings it to mind. As I and you, you and I memorize God's word and come up with a plan and are prepared to share the gospel in the heat of the moment. You're praying, and you're praying ahead of time, and you're praying during that moment of sharing the gospel. God, bring to mind Scripture that I have memorized, that I have meditated on day and night, that I know how to explain, that will be helpful to this person who is dead and blind. And God brings to mind, as you and I are submissive to the Spirit, God brings to mind in the library of our mind, He brings to mind the Scripture that we need and he, he is working in the person's heart. He's working in our lives to bring God's truth uh, to bear. And what the Father has is Christ. What the Holy Spirit is doing is making known uh, to us what the Father and the Son, and he's exalting who Jesus is. Now let's go back to Acts 1 and see if this matches what we see in Acts. So when Jesus says the Holy Spirit's coming, and he's coming, and you're going to be Something He's going to empower you and you're going to, he's going to empower you in a very particular way. He's going to empower you to speak of the Son. Elsewhere in John 16, it said, that "This Holy Spirit's never going to magnify himself." So anytime that there is a show uh, as a, a church that claims to be a church and speaking for Christ and they uh, people are out of control, which isn't the Holy Spirit and they are exalting themselves, and they're trying to get big offerings um, and uh, manipulating people, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when He is empowering people, is exalting Christ and the Father. And that's what Acts 1.8 says. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will empower you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And throughout the book of Acts, when when the apostles are speaking, whenever Stephen's speaking, whenever Philip the Evangelist is speaking, you know what they're speaking about? They're speaking about Christ. They're exalting his death, his resurrection. They're exalting the gospel. Christ is at the center of the gospel. And as we speak the gospel, the Holy Spirit's convicting. He's, he's, he's like a sword piercing someone's heart and telling them, you are not right with God. You look like you're right with God. You look like you're not worried. But you realize you're under God's coming judgment, and they're scared to death. And people still are so, so fearful of death. Why? Because they're not right with God. Because they know that when death comes, then comes judgment. And it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And the Spirit empowers us to speak of the Son. Um, And so let's go to Acts 4. The Spirit is within... And the Spirit motivates our prayer. We never are like the. There are two words for empowered or filled in the book of Acts. One is, you think of like uh, like Samson that he was empowered um, temporarily to do a, a great thing, jumping on the donkey, killing people, or carrying gates of the city all the way up on top of a hill. Uh, that was special empower. That happens in the book of Acts for the miraculous. But there's also times when there is, and the end of Acts 4, whenever the the place is shaken and they're filled with the Spirit, that's a supernatural uh, power. We don't expect God to, um, today to fill us in a way that we're able to perform signs and wonders and speak in tongues and everything else that we see uh, in the book of Acts. But what we can be is filled with the Spirit so that He is constantly controlling us, constantly controlling leading us and this is uh, how we want um, as as the Holy Spirit motivates us to pray as he's convicting people around us of sin and righteousness of judgment and we're asking as we were encouraged in Sunday school to do God lead me to someone who needs you today give me an opportunity to speak here is the Holy Spirit convicting this person And here you are praying and ready to witness, and somehow you walk in the same store at the same time. Not a coincidence. God's sovereignty. That's what we see. And it it happens all of the time. And we need to be ready. And we pray to be ready. And when the world starts hating us, it's a really good time for Christians. You say, what? What if we're scattered? What if we lose everything? This world is temporary. We're using everything that we have that's temporary for something that is eternal. Use your house, use your car, use your money to lay up treasure in heaven where no one will take it away. So Acts 4, the apostles in Acts 3, Peter and John in particular, help this man who was uh, paralyzed, crippled, to walk again. He's leaping and praising God. Peter has a chance to witness uh, for Christ and condemn those who um, crucified Christ, and um, that's Acts 3. They are incarcerated, put in prison for overnight, and because the people are so happy that this guy was walking again, uh, the The religious leaders, like Pilate, seeking to please the crowd. That's why Jesus was crucified. They are seeking to please the crowd. That's why they don't whip uh, and uh, torture the, uh, the two apostles in Acts 4. They do in Acts 5, but not in Acts 4. So they warn them a couple times, don't speak in Jesus' name. And they say, you judge whether it's right in verse 19 of Acts 4. You judge whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. You must judge, for we cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. And they are let go. And when they released, verse 23, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The threats. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. Let's just stop right there. If you and I get threatened, like we're going to hurt you, we're going to take something away from you, and we gather as God's people and we pray, Sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth and everything in this earth, We have just put ourselves, and the Holy Spirit is empowering these people to pray this way. And it's recorded for us to read. That the Holy Spirit is helping focus these people off of the threats of man and on to where it should be, our sovereign Lord. As parents, we need to teach our kids God is sovereign. The nations rage and the Gentiles imagine vain things of how they're going to try to throw off the throne or throw off the sovereignty of God. You can't fight God. And we need to pray in a way in our homes and when we gather as God's people, we need to pray in a way that we address God as the sovereign Lord. What makes him sovereign? Here's the definition of sovereignty. You control everything all the time completely. No one can do that except God. If God was not in control of anything that's ever happened in any country, even in the depths of the ocean, God's not sovereign. But he is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, he's helping these people. And they are vastly outnumbered. They've got Romans soldiers to help them. They've got a lot of the crowd that were chanting "Crucify Jesus 50, 60 days prior. And now these people are going out and telling them that you need to trust Christ. You need to trust in the Savior that you just crucified. And for the majority of the audience, they're rejecting that message. And they're outnumbered. And they're threatened. And they gather together and they say, sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We're going to go back to God's sovereignty in a second, but when we get to verse uh, 28, does God's sovereignty, question for us, does God's sovereignty motivate your faith-filled praying? Is God working? Yes. Is God convicting the world of sin and righteousness of judgment? Yes. Is he sovereign over the hearts of every single person on the face of the earth? Of all time? Yes. Are we empowered by the Spirit to speak? Yes. And we need to speak to our God, our sovereign Lord and if you're not motivated to, to speak for the sovereign Lord, it's probably because you haven't experienced persecution. That you haven't had men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for Jesus' sake. We live in a very comfortable time, but if the Lord tarries, this country is not going to be comfortable for Christians. The dividing line is coming whenever we stand with God against the world and the world is going to start hating us as more and more powerful people controlled by Satan and hating of Jesus and hating the truth and hating the gospel and hating anyone who would stand in their way. And we cannot sign things that say we won't preach all of God's word. We won't teach all of God's word. We can't join a revolution and rebel against God's design for man and woman in in marriage. Can't do it. And if we, when we get persecuted, our prayer will be very similar to this. Sovereign Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit here is is controlling these people's praying, but it's also the Holy Spirit reveals to them, and we know as well that the Holy Spirit was used to write scripture. So why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The word anointed there is Christ, the Messiah, against the Lord and against His coming King. This is Psalm 2. The first Psalm we know pretty well. The second Psalm you should, you should know because it's quoted here. Here are Here is a picture. And if you watch a movie and there are I guess Star Wars or other movies or Marvel movies, there's always usually gathering of the, the, the minds, okay? And in the gathering, here, here's the map, here's what we're going to do, here's our battle strategy. And all the leaders of the, the, uh, the groups gather together and they, they're plotting. How are we going to take out this person? How are we going to get control of this building? How are we going to get whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish? They gather together. Here's what the world's trying to accomplish, they're raging and they're plotting in vain. The kings of the earth have set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against God, and against his Messiah, his Savior. Why? Well, John 3 also tells us why. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You tell someone. That Jesus is the light of the world, you need the light. It's like sitting in a dark room and loving the darkness. And when someone comes and turns on the light, like in the morning when you have to get out of bed and maybe your parents woke you up this way, oh, worst thing ever. Turn on the light. Ah, ah, ah. Why? Because your eyes aren't ready for light. Your eyes have gotten used to darkness. It's a shock. Would, Would you rather live in darkness or light? Would you rather get operated on in darkness or light? You ever in an operating room, you like, see, or the dentist chair, and they give you sunglasses now. You know why? Because the light is so bright. But you know what? All those fine tools and stuff that they pry and poke your teeth and the shot they give you to numb it, oh yeah, not you can't have too much light. <laughs> give me the sunglasses. Because I want you to be able to see what you're doing. But people live in darkness, gotten used to their darkness and their sin, and hate the light. And we're coming to them, and we are the light of the world. We are reflecting Christ-like light to them. And guess what? They, many people don't like it. That's all right. The Spirit motivates our prayer to witness, focusing on God's sovereignty. It's not about us. It's about a sovereign king. It's not about the world because the world's going to reject the sovereignty of God. Verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus is the anointed one in Psalm 2. Both Herod, that's a Jewish leader, Pontius Pilate, a Roman leader, along with the Gentiles, all not Jewish people, and the people of Israel. Everybody, everybody around Jesus. What are they doing whenever Jesus is here? They're gathered together against him. And everyone that knows the story, this is only probably a couple months later. This isn't long after Jesus was in Jerusalem and the crowds are whipped into a frenzy, screaming at the top of their lungs to crucify him. And the apostles, if they're in the crowd, they are like, oh, no, no. And they're silent. And they're very uncomfortable. But he is sovereign. Why did God allow Jesus to be crucified? Well, this prayer tells us why. So, fulfilling Psalm 2, yes. And then verse 28, to do Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is where sovereignty is around scripture and around history. God is sovereign because he's the creator. He's also sovereign in his predestined plan for salvation. And in the middle, here is the people gathered around Jesus and they're standing against God and we're going to crucify him and we did crucify him. But this was all part of God's plan. God didn't stop being sovereign when Jesus goes to the cross. He actually proves his sovereignty with Jesus dying on the cross. Here's how sovereignty works God allows the people on earth to ad lib and his play, so to speak, in, in their lives, and still the end comes out exactly how God has planned. That's perfect. Sovereignty. And that's a paraphrase of something I heard in in a class. I wrote it down. I'm like, that's really good. That's how sovereignty works. You can do whatever you want, and you're not going to change my plan. You can hate me and stand against me, and I'll send you Christ, and you can crucify him. That's part of the plan. You know what the world can't do? And whenever they were doing uh, plagues in Egypt, you know what the uh, priests couldn't do? They couldn't ever stop God's hand. They couldn't turn the water back into water from blood. They couldn't do it. They could only try to convince people that it wasn't really that powerful until God allowed, stopped them allowing them to do that too. God is sovereign throughout all of history, and he will be sovereign into the future. And in his sovereignty, he likely will allow many, many Christians to suffer persecution. It's all part of his plan. He does not leave us while we're being persecuted. You can tell with these people, they're not suffering emotionally, cowering in a corner of fear. Like, I, I don't know if we can go out there and do that again. It's so hard. That's not the, that's not the picture we get here in Acts. They are bold. Where does boldness come from? It doesn't come from your own flesh or your own heart or your own intellect or your mind or your muscles. That's not where boldness comes from here. Boldness comes, as was promised in Acts 1, from the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's helping these people to pray as they're getting threatened. Acts 5, they're going to get beaten and they're rejoicing after they're beaten, accounted worthy uh, that they were to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Wow, this is spirit-controlled people living in a hostile world. You know why we need the Holy Spirit to motivate our prayers? Because the world hates our Messiah. If you give the world a Jesus that they can swallow easily, you're not giving them a biblical Jesus. If you're giving them a Jesus that they hate, that's probably that's probably it. Telling someone to submit to Jesus as Lord of their life and not just accept him, not just receive eternal life, you're telling them to lay down your arms, stop rebelling against God, and submit to Jesus as your king. And whatever he says goes from now on. That's the gospel. And you are not righteous. Only Jesus is. You're following Satan. Follow Jesus instead. Satan's dragging you to hell with all of your friends and all the lies that come with that. The world hates our Messiah. It still will. And if you don't think it does, read the book of Revelation. And while Jesus is pouring out his wrath, they are blaspheming him. And while he's on earth during the millennium, as the sand of the sea, people reject Jesus and gather around him to try to destroy him in in Revelation 20. The Spirit motivates our prayer. We need the Holy Spirit because we are not powerful. We're not bold by ourselves. As bold as Peter was, he denied Jesus three times. And we look down on Peter, but you know what? Peter didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of him then. Would you look at Peter with the Holy Spirit inside of him? And he is preaching in Acts 2 and Acts 8, and he's in Acts uh, 3 and 4 and 5. He's bold. Boldness comes from submission to the Spirit we need boldness look at verse 29 how the prayer ends and now lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and um, with signs and wonders are performed through your name of your holy servant jesus and when they had prayed the place which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and they continue to speak the word of god with boldness It was an empowering that we'd love to replicate. I'd love to have the ability, and you'd love to have the ability, to heal people with signs and wonders. But God doesn't give that to us today, typically. There are some places in great persecution that I've heard stories that I don't have any reason to doubt. But that's not the normal way God uses his people today. The normal way is the Spirit convicts, the Spirit prepares us and helps us to pray so we witness. And here's what we ask for, boldness. If we know the Spirit's working, then the the problem with evangelism is not the Spirit. It's our problem. We're not bold. Why aren't we bold? Because we're relying on our flesh. It seems that simple, but when we rely on the Spirit, the Spirit enables us to speak. So what if people hate our message? They hate our Messiah. We think about God's sovereignty and pray God's sovereignty and gather with his people. The threats were the beginning. In Acts 5, they're beaten. Acts 6, Stephen's arrested and stoned to death. And then they're scattered. And James writes to that scattered church and says, trials of your faith produce endurance and joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. If the world persecutes us, we're going to be joyful because we're counted worthy to suffer for the name. People that you read about today that are suffering in places around the world, they're joyful while suffering. And that that blows our mind because we think joy and comfort go together. No, you can have joy and prison, Acts 16. And when that happens, Jesus is magnified. Will you join us this year? To make Christ known together, making our Savior known. Is it your responsibility to make him known, or just a few here? If you know Christ, it's your responsibility. Are you going to rely on God's sovereignty? It's okay to memorize this prayer and pray pray it almost word for word. It's a prayer that pleases God. And uh, take biblical prayers like this and pray for boldness or you ask God for boldness. Let's, um, I'll give you 30 seconds of silent prayer, and then I'll close us uh, in a prayer. Sovereign Lord, we know you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We know you made everyone on the planet. You know how each person's mind and heart functions. We know what is said in Psalm 2 through David, and by your spirit, that the Gentiles, the world is raging against you and the peoples are plotting in vain. We know that the kings and the politicians and religious leaders of the earth have set themselves and their rulers are gathered together against you and against our Savior, the Anointed One. We know what happened to Christ with Herod and Pilate and non-Jewish and Jewish people around AD 30. But we also know that your hand and your plan had predestined that this to take place christ prophesied it and it happened exactly how he said and now we know that the world's going to threaten us to keep us quiet and speaking of your name we pray that you would grant us your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness convict us By relying on our flesh in evangelism and help us to rely completely on the spirit and I pray that you'd be pleased we know that you'll be pleased with us trying to uh, be biblical in our evangelism help us to be prepared and thank you for the spirit convicting the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment in Christ's name we ask this